Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. My guest today is Howard French, the former New York Times journalist and current professor of journalism at the Columbia School of Journalism, and someone who distinguishes himself, at least in my eyes, as the moral conscience of Western reporting on Africa. Howard's newest book, published in May 2014, is called China's Second Continent, How a Million Migrants Are Building a New Empire in Africa. And we kick off our conversation with a discussion about China's relationship with Africa. We then pivot and have a longer conversation about Howard's reporting experiences in Western Africa that includes some pretty interesting and fascinating stories, uh, not least of which is the time that he first met Charles Taylor, the warlord Charles Taylor. Here it is, my conversation with Howard French. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I'd say two things. One is that, you know, uh, initially in Liberia in particular, but I think also in the other two countries, Guinea and Sierra Leone, uh, the immediate response of Chinese people living there was to leave the country. Um, and so you had a great uh, quick, rapid outflux of, of Chinese people, sort of a panic response to Ebola, uh, which I think is a fairly normal, if regrettable thing. What in population of, size, or if I can interrupt, what population uh, size are we talking about? I mean, I was in Liberia a couple of years ago and, um, you know, had lunch at like a Chinese buffet, which uh, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised to have had a lunch there. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, it's sort of striking to see, uh, you know, Chinese restaurants all, all over the place. So what, what sort of um, population are we talking I, about? I'm not aware of really hard numbers on this with almost any African country for that matter. But I, my own sort of informal off-the-cuff guess would be, you know, we're talking for a country like Liberia, probably if, I don't know, ten to 20,000 Chinese people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I was going to say that, you know, so what about Chinese interests? I, the, the thing that one must understand about China's uh, play in Africa, which has sort of risen to a level of real, real visibility uh, internationally, is that this isn't a spur-of-the-moment thing, and it's not also going to be turned around or reversed in a spur-of-the-moment way because of something like Ebola. China began planning a big push in Africa in the mid-1990s, um, and so this is really a long-term policy on the part of China. There are certain aspects of it, like the large movements of people that don't seem to have been as centrally planned or as thought through or anticipated as other pieces of it, but China's presence in Africa, Africa is is uh, sort of overall is something that re, that sort of uh, is based on very carefully calculated state interests that's of a long-term nature, and, and I expect that to continue. 
Um, I guess, and, and so this, I presume, goes to the heart of, of your book. Um, so what, what are some of these interests, and how are they manifest in China's investments in Africa? The, the, the thing that's most often commented upon, of course, is China's interest in natural resources. Um, China uh, does have an interest in natural resources. China's a big, you know, the world's leading manufacturing country, and so uh, raw material and um, resource inputs are very important to China. But I think that this uh, type of interest in Africa obscures the longer-term play that China is mounting in Africa, and that longer-term play, I think, goes much deeper and gets away from natural resources altogether. And it's really about markets. China sees that uh, as an exporting superpower, the the main its mainstay markets of the first generation of China's takeoff, namely Western markets, rich Western markets, the United States, Western Europe, Japan, etc., that these markets have poor demographics and questionable economic profiles. In other words, heavily indebted populations, very rapidly aging populations, uh, etc. And so China begins to think early in the 1990s and concludes by the middle, middle of that decade, we need to have other parts of the world that can pick up the slack in terms of demand for our exports. Uh, and we see Africa as a long-term play that's going to be very interesting for us. Uh, you know, recently Africa has gotten belated attention in the West for quickly rising, fast-growing middle classes and, and, and huge population growth. China perceived this, again, in the early 1990s. And so that's, that's really what this is about in a long-term sense, figuring out who else China can sell its goods to down the road. And, and in stark contrast to the United States and to probably most of Western Europe, China's not down on Africa at all. It doesn't see Africa as a burden or a, a handicap or as a place of simple misery. It sees Africa as an economic space and one that is going to uh, rise um, commensurate with its size and to provide future markets. So I guess is it fair to say then that China's much better positioned to exploit Africa's you know booming middle class uh, than the United States is? Uh, yes, that would be fair to say. That's what that's really what's driving China's interest in Africa, I believe, in general. Um, and I guess you know the the common um, you know knock on you know, China's investment in Africa is that it's um, devoid of say human rights concerns. Um, that it's you know development um, uh, uh, investments uh, don't necessarily have the same strings attached to it as the United States would or European countries would. Um, do you see that as sort of negatively affecting, you know, the human rights situation in Africa or social development in, in any way? Um, I, I, so this is, gets to be complicated very quickly. I mean, I, I, I am personally a very strong believer in the merits of democracy, and uh, I would like to see um, democratic development everywhere. Um, and Africa is by no means an exception here. Um, at the same time, I don't expect uh, naively uh, and nor should we in general uh, that China is going to adopt uh, the standards of other societies to sort of project upon the world uh, uh, as it proceeds to develop its interests. Standards of other societies here means the standards of the West as it projects, it, China projects, projects its interests or develops its interests in new frontiers. Um, I I think it's complicated for other reasons, too, um, because uh, although in a few cases uh, one could make, I think, a pretty strong argument that 
Chinese relative indifference to human rights and certain other things like environmental criteria, uh, labor law, uh, uh, etc. Uh, in places like Sudan and Zimbabwe, one could argue that these have uh, uh, perhaps uh, made a very difficult situation worse. Um, in general, I don't think that that's been the case. In general, I think that African civil societies have begun to play a pretty vigorous role in putting pressure on their governments to demand um, that their deals with China be more transparent and that their deals with China be more uh, aligned with the real national interests of the populations of these countries. And so um, it would be nice if we lived in a perfect world where all of the powerful states looked after the best interests of all of the weakest weaker states. Um, that's never been the case, even with the most enlightened of the Western actors. Um, but really, there's no substitute for having um, vigorous civil societies in increasingly democratic situations on the ground in Africa that can demand these things from their own leaders. Well, yeah, I mean, I wonder if you can make the case that, you know, uh, an expanding middle class is um, necessary for a healthy democracy. And to the extent that China's investments in certain countries are producing this expanding middle class, then they are probably enhancing or deepening potential democratic roots to take hold in those countries as well. What I would say is that, that to the extent that China is contributing to growth in Africa, uh, that with uh, a variety of pluses and minuses, this has to be considered a net plus. Um, and so you will see areas where this is having a, uh, perhaps a bad environmental impact, or you'll see areas where it might even be having a, a negative uh, human rights impact. But in the aggregate, I think that, the, that increased Chinese demand and engagement economically with Africa is enabling, is, is putting African countries uh, in a position to build out their middle classes, uh, as you say. And the, it is these middle classes which will have to demand down the road accountability from their governments in dealing with China and in, 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 in every other aspect of their lives. Um, so switching gears a, a little bit, uh, when was your first uh, visit to Africa? When was the first time you, you traveled there? Uh, my first trip to Africa was in 1975 uh, as I uh, um, uh, was setting, I, I entered college that fall. Um, and Where were you in school? At University of Massachusetts okay. um, in Amherst. Um, and uh, as I was leaving for school, as it happened, my family was moving, my parents and my younger, four younger siblings were moving to West Africa, to Ivory Coast, where my father became the director of a regional health care project under the auspices of the World Health Organization. Um, and that Christmas, I visited my family in Ivory Coast, and I began subsequently to go back uh, every major vacation, Christmases and summers. And then when I graduated from college, I moved to Ivory Coast and my family moved back to the United States a little time after that, but I stayed on. And so this sort of became the beginning of the rest of my life as somebody who became a journalist in Africa and who remained involved with Africa ever since. So what was the WHO project that your father was uh, administering? Was he, was he a medical doctor or a, a development my, my father, No, my father was a, uh, uh, originally was a surgeon, but mid-career went to Hopkins and got an advanced degree in public health and became a public health uh, physician, uh, and the project was called 
strengthening healthcare delivery systems in 20 West and Central African countries. It's quite a mouthful, but but it, it it's a fairly descriptive name. And it was the point of it was to build uh, to reinforce primary healthcare um, programs in 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 the participating countries. Uh, and I, I guess you know Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, in in the 19 mid 1970s to 80s was sort of like a, a booming time, right? Um, because I, I don't know that much about it. My understanding is that a lot of the um, you know, that that so the Ivory Coast economy is pegged a lot to cocoa production, right? And, and the price of cocoa mm-hmm. and, and coffee. And so, uh, and it was probably what in the mid 80s when things went south. But but around then things were probably pretty pretty good in, in Cote d'Ivoire, right? You're right. Um, probably late 80s things went south. Uh, Ivory Coast in that period was 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 just a tremendous place. Um, uh, incredibly prosperous uh, for the, uh, in comparison to the rest of the region. Uh, it had a veneer of stability. It had a great infrastructure. Um, it had a great sort of popular culture. Um, uh, and uh, it's a, a bit of a sort of underrated disaster that it fell apart. Underrated only because, uh, as with uh, Ebola, the international community was very slow to engage in a kind of preventive demo- uh, diplomacy that I think could have averted a lot of this. And so, the what what was the disaster? If you can if you can talk about it, the, the um, long serving head of state there was what was what's his name like? Hupfei Bwani. Yes, Hupfei Bwani. Bwani. And and his how did his rule come to an end? So the disaster was uh, there were two opportunities for the international community to have uh, arguably uh, averted the demise or the sort of serious decline of, of this uh, society. The first is that Hufwe ruled for 30, I think it was 33 years. Um, and uh, he, I mean, that was a sort of bad enough fact in itself. Um, but uh, he, in his final decline, he left a very unclear roadmap for succession. Um, he, he had a, a prime minister who was the current president, who he encouraged to believe uh, he uh, endorsed to become president or, or who he favored somehow. And he had a uh, head of the National Assembly who actually literally succeeded him, who uh, was constitutionally enabled very clearly to become president. So there was these muddied waters, and the international community might have found a way to uh, sort of coax out of uh, Hufwe a clearer legal path toward uh, succession without any ambiguity. Um, whatever the case, Conan uh, Bedier, uh, the guy who had been the head of the National Assembly, succeeds under sort of tumultuous circumstances, succeeds Hufwe in a conflict with or rivalry with Alassane Ouattara, the president. And then uh, Bedier, in order to seal his legitimacy or trying to seal his legitimacy, then very soon afterwards begins to pursue a policy called a kind of nativist policy uh, called uh, ivoirité, which was sort of aimed at marginalizing uh, the ethnicities of the ethnic groups of the north from which Ouattara, the current president, uh, hails. Um, and so Bédier begins to talk about uh, the need to prove your uh, citizenship and to be a true Ivorian in order to participate in the country's politics and management. Uh, and this sort of attempt to marginalize the northerners, including Watsara, then feeds into what becomes a big civil war and a huge disaster for for the country. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, the Civil War resumed again, uh, I suppose, again, in the, the aftermath of, what was it, the 2012 elections? 2010 elections? Uh, yeah, resumed yeah. very briefly, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Ouattara is, is now president. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, so this was, I guess, uh, part of the context of your first visit uh, to Cote d'Ivoire, although the, the events you described happened uh, a bit after that. Um, uh, what compelled you to study journalism? I didn't study journalism. I well, became a journalist perfect. <laughs> very much by accident. Um, well, let's uh, tell that story. I, uh, how did, that, how did sure. that come to be? So I moved to, um, uh, immediately after graduation, I moved to Ivory Coast. I thought I would spend, I had no idea what I wanted to do really um, with my life and thought, as many graduating uh, students do, uh, thought I'd take a year off. And so I moved to Ivory Coast and I spent that year working as a translator. I, had, I was already had worked hard at French and was uh, fluent enough to, to, to take on a job as a translator. And that while I'm doing a translation work, I begin to do a little bit of freelance writing and just sort of discovering a, a real fondness for, for, for that. I had not previously thought of myself as a journalist or had any inkling of an interest in journalism. Um, so that was an accident. And I began subsequently to teach English at the University of Ivory Coast, and and that sort of gave me a foundation uh, to sort of in terms of living situation. And and little by little, I began to cobble together on the side of that a, a freelancing career. And this led around, I think, 1982 to the Washington Post beginning to pick up stories of mine. And then for the next three or four years, I wrote for them as well as for The Economist and for various other publications. And do you remember your first? Uh, do you remember your first byline story in the Washington Post? You know, I don't actually remember what the first. I should, I should know this. I don't remember what the very first one was, but I, I had occasion just the other day to look up some of my very early work for them, and that involved the change of name of the country Burkina Faso from what it had been previously, Haute Volta. Uh, Upper Volta. Um, I wrote that story in the Washington Post, and I wrote the story of the r- stories about the rise of Thomas Sankara, a very charismatic, um, progressive army figure, to power in, in Burkina Faso, and his subsequent demise, murdered probably by the current president, until very recently the president Blaise Compaoré. And so I covered all of that for for the Washington Post. One of my first. Some of my other very early work would have concerned war between France and Libya and Chad. Uh, what is that? I, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, so there was a, a series of proxy wars between um, France and Libya uh, in Chad, where France maintained military bases, um, and uh, the Libyans kept sponsoring rebel movements um, uh, aimed at installing a proxy uh, of Libya under Gaddafi in Chad, and uh, very early in my career at the Post, I, they sent me there, and I covered scenes of, uh, was literally taken in helicopters. Actually, I'm looking at a photo of this now, um, from to the battle, uh, to the front, essentially in the middle of the desert, where almost in World War One kind of conditions, you had French soldiers in kind of trenches um, uh, lined up uh, against Libyan positions. The difference from World War One being that the French had uh, a very powerful air force that was dropping, uh, you know, all kinds of bombs on the Libyan positions some several hundred yards away. Um, I spent a couple of days on the front watching that, and and this was kind of a, a, a strangely because I I really frown on 
people who identify themselves as war correspondents in particular nowadays. But but the, I understand it because the exhilaration from these sorts of early experiences really had a lot to do with kind of clinching my interest in becoming, in a career sense, in, in doing this kind of work. I mean, did you witness like death and destruction firsthand? Oh, for sure. Yeah, the, in one of my trips to Chad, there was street to street fighting, block to block fighting in in Jemena, the capital, and there was some, um, uh, you know, I mean, I was on the battlefield with this operation, I think it was called Epervier, uh, in which, you know, you could see, you know, there were, the bombs were being dropped on the Libyan positions. I wasn't, you know, I was on the French, <laughs> I was on the French side there, but, so I, didn't, I wasn't in the trenches with the Libyans, but you knew what was happening. I guess how, I've always wondered how you sort of process something like that. I mean, as a as a reporter, you know you're supposed to be somewhat detached, but uh, you know you're you're you know sort of not Im- I guess embedded with troops isn't wasn't quite the term used back then. But how mm-hmm. do you I mean uh, how do you, how do you absorb what's happening around you? Well, uh, you know nothing prepares you for this, um, uh, absolutely nothing, uh, and so you're you're dealing with sky high adrenaline, and you are uh, it's impossible not to think of your own. Uh, the possibility of your own death, and uh, you know the the strange, slightly uncomfortable piece of this is that you know because you are vulnerable in, in a situation like the one I've just described, you kind of inevitably hope that the side that you're uh, let's call it embedded with wins because the you know the consequences of them losing become personal very quickly. Um, at the same time, as a journalist, as you said, you're supposed to be impartial, and I was then already and have always been ever since a real skeptic of imperialism on, under its many guises, and the French were really imperialists in Africa, and so, uh, you know, maybe the Libyans, one could argue, were trying to be imperialist too, but I had seen a lot of French imperialism close up, and I knew its under, ugly underside, and so, I, my, you know, intellectually, uh, I was hardly someone to root for the French, um, and yet, you know, in terms of survival, one had to pull for them. And so you're being tugged in a, in a bunch of different directions, and all of this is happening very fast. And there's not, there's not a whole lot of time to, to sort of, one, you, you can never reach a state of detachment to process this. It's, it's all flying past you. Uh, so were you still a stringer at this point? I was, yes. Um, and... When and how for like I guess for how long did you remain uh, a freelancer in in Western Africa? Uh, from eighty two to eighty six, and I was hired by the Times in eighty six and came to New York and worked here for three years, and then was sent back out by the Times and worked overseas for them for the next two decades plus. And so, what was your first overseas uh, dispatch uh, with the New York Times? Well, while I was a metro reporter, I was, I asked, I was asked repeatedly to go to Haiti, where uh, there was a succession of coup d'etats and, and all kinds of other strife. Um, and that was because, you know, ostensibly, it was certainly because I spoke French, but probably also because in the minds of the editors, I had covered Africa, and therefore Haiti was, you know, somewhat like Africa, and I could help out there. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of uh, wasn't, not unaware of the uh, sort of ironic simplicities involved there, but um, I was happy for the opportunity, and I did work that sort of uh, was 
considered a bit of dues paying for the, for for as a metro reporter and, and going to a place in conflict like Haiti, and this helped put me on the radar to get me back on the foreign staff. Uh, and so, uh, what year did you uh, arrive in Haiti? Uh, so I arrived in New York in 1986, and I would probably say, uh, you know, I haven't looked at this material for a long time, but probably the following year, 1987. Okay. These were these were these were these were um, uh, you know assignments of two three weeks at a time and. Okay. Haiti would blow up and they would send me from New York and I would come back to resume my life as a Metro reporter. I didn't become a foreign correspondent for the time in a permanent sense until 1990. Uh, so did you go back and cover Haiti, I guess, in 93 during the U.S. intervention? Uh, that was in 94, I think. 94. Um, oh, so close. Almost. Yeah. Off by a year. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, it's, I, I only know that because I was covering Haiti from 90 to 94. I was covering uh, the Caribbean and Central America uh, during that period, and Haiti was the biggest story. Uh, you know, Nicaragua and El Salvador and Nicaragua were good stories too, and I covered a bit of the drug war in Colombia. Um, but Haiti was a kind of ongoing story with the rise and fall of of Aristide. Um, and as it turns out, I left. <clears throat> I was reassigned. I left Haiti and was sent back to uh, Africa, to West Africa again, by the times just before, you know, a question of weeks before the U.S. intervention. Mm -hmm. uh, did you suspect that intervention was, was coming? I mean, was it, uh, you know, just based on your own reporting, did you think that there was, you know, the, the succession of, of refugees uh, to the, you know, coast of Florida would prompt U.S. intervention in some way? Yes, I mean, it was pretty clear. The U.S., not only that, but the U.S. had given a series of ultimata to, to, to the Haitian military. Um, and so it was becoming a case of, you know, um, uh, credibility for the U.S. If it didn't, you know, if it didn't step up, um, it had really put, put itself out there in terms of these ultimata. Um, and so one knew something was going to happen. Uh, and so where did you set up base in West Africa? Did you go back to uh, Cote d'Ivoire? Back to Cote d'Ivoire, yeah. Uh, and what sort of stories were you coming? I mean, it's not obviously West Africa, but did, did you cover at all the Rwanda uh, genocide in, in April that year? No, so I, this, I didn't arrive until, um, uh, I think, probably August. Mm -hmm. So I did not cover the Rwanda genocide. Um, I was on honeymoon with my wife in Paris when the genocide happened. Um, and the Times announced to me then uh, that they wanted to send me back to Africa. Um, but I, the actual move, because I had children in school and stuff, didn't happen until after post-genocide. Um, the stories that I covered in my four years for the Times in West Africa, were covering West and Central Africa, were uh, the Liberian and Sierra Leone civil wars, um, uh, the Sani Abacha dictatorship in Nigeria, and um, probably in the biggest and most prolonged sense, the sort of the, the first and second Congo wars, the, the bid by, um, successful bid by Rwanda to invade Congo and overthrow Mobutu, which I covered uh, from start to finish, and then the very beginning of the second Congo war. Um, let's can, can we talk through some of those uh, stories that you covered? Um, specifically, you know, the the Liberian Civil War. What was do, do you recall your first sort of dispatch about uh, what was going on there? I, I suppose. Maybe, can you actually maybe set the scene uh, for 
uh, listeners who maybe aren't as um, deeply enmeshed in Liberian history, like what was going on at the time? Sure. So um, in um, uh, Liberia had had a had been was a, was a former American sort of semi-colony and had been an American client state, if backwater client state for a very long time. And you know they had a um, a military junta under a guy named Samuel Doe, who was eventually um, overthrown um, as a result of um, uh, basically his own soldiers turned on him amid a civil war started by a guy named Charles Taylor, who in, who invade, invaded the country from from uh, uh, neighboring Ivory Coast. Um, uh, actually, I'm blanking on the year. I'll give you the year in a second, but. Um, that was somewhat before I showed up uh, uh, as uh, correspondent for the Times. Um, when I got there in, in um, 1994, the country was under partial occupation by a West African peacekeeping force called ECOMOG, which was run by um, the Nigerians uh, principally. Um, and uh, then you had a kind of rump state, so in Monrovia, which was called Greater Monrovia, because that was the extent to which the, the extent of territory that the, that the peacekeeping force controlled, and then the rest of the country, uh, the countryside, uh, was controlled by rebel forces, and you had uh, two main rebel forces. Um, you had um, uh, one controlled by a group that came from Guinea. Um, and you had the bigger piece of the countryside controlled by Charles Taylor, who set up a sort of parallel capital in the northern city called Banga. Um, and so, you know, I arrived in Liberia to a country that was living under curfew, where there's no electricity, where roadblocks everywhere, where, you know, the, the Nigerian Ekamog troops, you know, had set up uh, sort of roadblocks and camps everywhere you went in the part of the country that they controlled, and then the rest of the country controlled by warlords. Um, and so the covering the country was essentially about trying to see, figure out what was happening in the non-Ekamog-controlled part of the country, the great uh, greater Liberia, which is well, what, what Charles Taylor called the, 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 the part that he controlled in the north. Uh, were you ever able to interview him uh, face-to-face? Yes, I, I, um, what was the first, I you describe like the first, uh, first time you met him and what it was like? Well, so I traveled to Banga to meet him, uh, crossing in the no man's land that divided the country between the Nigerian controlled greater Monrovia and the bigger sort of vaster countryside and with a couple of other colleagues. And we drove, I don't remember, several hours to, to Banga, uh, to, for a prearranged interview with, with Taylor, and we get in at very late at night after a very arduous drive under really dangerous circumstances where we had been stopped and menaced a few times along the way, um, and we hadn't eaten, and we get in uh, again late at night, and it's in the rainy season, and just as we reach Bunga, the skies open up, and you know it starts... Uh, this is in equatorial West Africa, where you have these torrential, torrential downpours, and it just was this immense rain, and we didn't have a place to stay, and finally we find a place to stay. We ended up, we, um, uh, we ended up staying at a place called Cuttington College, which was a closed agricultural Sounds preppy. College. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, anything but. Um, <laughs> it, it was basically a gutted agricultural, agricultural extension school, um, uh, and we sort of 
shacked up there uh, for the night, and we were to meet Taylor in the morning. And we um, uh, we went to see Taylor in the morning, um, and uh, Taylor was due the, um, that evening to go to Monrovia for the very first time in years under a negotiated circumstance um, and for meetings. And we, so I was trying to scoop that event by by interviewing him in Banga. Um, and we arrive at his sort of temporary presidential palace and were kept waiting forever uh, and treated very rudely by um, uh, his staff. Um, and uh, we finally decided to leave, that if we're going to get back to, if he's indeed going to Monrovia uh, and we're going to be able to cover his arrival in Monrovia, which was a big deal, we better, we better hit the road. And, and so we, we left. Um, and we were warned by his aides not to leave. Uh, and we set out. Uh, nonetheless, we're driving, I don't know, 20 minutes outside of Banga, and we start seeing uh, convoys of armed troops uh, on pickup trucks heading, speeding incredibly, with, you know, rifles and RPGs waving uh, in the opposite direction. So we're heading south toward Monrovia, and they're coming north toward Banga. And we're trying to figure out what the hell's going on. This must, is there a night break of fighting? Are they attacking Bongo or what? Um, and we finally, we reach a roadblock and we discover that the very place that there had indeed been fighting overnight in the area, um, and that not more than an hour or two after we left Cuttington College, the place that we had slept had been attacked and destroyed. Um, and so we, uh, you know, what it might have been in very difficult, uh, uh, a very difficult state ourselves had we not moved on. But now we're on the highway racing back to Monrovia. And this, to make this long story short, we, after a car breakdown and a flat tire, et cetera, et cetera, we limped into Monrovia just in time to capture the Charles Taylor event. He shows up, uh, and um, I interviewed him, uh, actually participated in a press conference. I recount all of this in my first book, um, A Continent for the Taking. But um, I, I, there was this uh, absolutely terrified kind of response to him in a, by, by Liberian journalists in a press conference who they were all aff- seemingly afraid to ask him any difficult questions because of his reputation as being a, a, a really vindictive person. And so I began asking him about uh, the use of... Ch- drugs and, you know, child soldiers and things like that, and um, essentially the, the press conference was called off as a result of me kind of upsetting things. And, um, that so he never answered your question? Well, so his, his press uh, attaché stood up and began denying all of this stuff, but Taylor himself basically didn't answer the question, and they, they curtailed the press conference as a result of this. Did you ever get another chance to uh, speak to him or meet him? Um, I spoke to him on the telephone a few times after that, but I never actually sat down with him otherwise. Uh, and now it's, it's worth uh, putting a coda to the story by saying that he is uh, in, in jail uh, at the moment, right? He's, he's in, in The Hague at the moment. The, uh, That's right. Uh, where he was tried by the Sierra Leone, the special court for Sierra Leone, um, which mm-hmm. was the, the UN war crimes tribunal for, for that conflict. Um, that's, right. so that, that's a, that's, that's a pretty, pretty, uh, fascinating story. Um, were you, did you happen to be just while, while we're you know, talking about Liberia, were you there in say, I guess it must've been 2003, um, when, uh, Taylor was finally overthrown. Were you covering that story as well? 
No, I was uh, in 2003 in China. Mm-hmm. Well, let's yeah. let's talk about Move let's talk about China then. So when sure. when did you uh, make the the move to China? When when you dispatched there? So at the end of the my coverage of the Congolese uh, wars, I was given the opportunity to by the Times to completely change. I had been doing um, what are euphemistically known as developing countries, and until that point, uh, Central America, the Caribbean, Africa twice. And they said, what would you like to do? And I, you know, thought about it a little bit, and I told them, in, in, in the workings of the sort of foreign correspondence life, what would you like to do is in part a function of what's coming up, what's, come, what's going to be opening up in the near future. And all of the staff correspondents of a given publication have a rough sense of the play of the different bureaus. And so I, I did too, and I knew that, Japan was opening as a bureau, and I bid for Japan. I said I'd like to go to Japan, and so this became uh, a huge career shift for for me, which took place um, in 1998. Um, and the Times was good enough to let me go to study Japanese for a year, which I did in Hawaii uh, at the university as a visiting scholar um, uh, intensively. And then we moved to Japan, where I lived for the next four years. Um, almost five years. Um, and so Japan became the prelude, prelude in a way that I, I had no prior mapping for. I mean, I didn't, this wasn't planned in advance, but Japan sets me up then to go to China. And, and in 2003, we moved to Shanghai, um, where I was the uh, bureau chief until 2008, basically covering social change in China throughout the country. And as a foreign correspondent in China, which obviously has some pretty intense um, restrictions on press freedom internally, I mean, how, I guess, free are you to um, report on, you know, social upheavals uh, and and social change? Well, you know, actually remarkably free um, in the sense that Chinese people, uh, to my surprise and delight when I arrived uh, there, uh, discovered are very easy to talk to. Chinese people are, uh, especially when, for what one considers rightly to be an authoritarian society, Chinese people are, in my experience anyway, um, just really open. Uh, they're prepared without much uh, provocation to tell you about their lives and their complaints and griefs and all the rest. And so um, at the level of personal contact with Chinese, um, you know, hearing their stories, understanding what they're going through, it was uh, it, it was completely accessible and fascinating. Um, the Chinese state is operating at another level, and one of the things that they did was uh, try to interfere with people like me and to make our life a little more difficult. I, my very first reporting trip in China was... Uh, you know, I flew from Shanghai to Ulumuchi, which is the capital of Xinjiang province in the Muslim far west. And this is like flying from New York to San Francisco. And I got to um, Ulumuchi for the first time and I with a photographer and a Chinese assistant. And we check into a hotel in late afternoon and we're really excited to go out and begin to sort of wander the streets of this city and to report. Um, and we check in, we come downstairs, uh, we wander out and Five minutes outside of a hotel, I discover I've left my notebook in my room. First trip, first reporting trip in China, I, so, so I've got to go back. And so we, I, we 
rush back to the hotel. I go up to the whatever floor it was and come out of the elevator, and I see a guy immediately next to the elevator speaking into his shirt collar like the Secret Service does. Um, and I look down at the end of the hall, and as he's doing that, somebody comes out of my room who's also speaking into his shirt collar. So in the five minutes that we had been outside of the hotel, the Chinese state police had sent somebody into my room to look at my computer or to bug my room or to whatever. Um, and this, I tell this story because it's kind of characteristic of the, a variety of things that the state did. We were on reporting trips that the state, in on subjects that the state considered sensitive, many times I was detained briefly and people who worked for me were interrogated and you know, and sometimes arrested for, you know, uh, a period of days or, or in the worst case, maybe a few weeks. But um, none of this, I, I keep like to keep this all in perspective because the Chinese people really deserve credit for the fact that none of this prevents them really from saying when they want to say something, what they want to say. Did you basically operate under the principle that you were being sort of watched and, and bugged and that your communications were being monitored? From that, with that having been my very first trip uh, experience, there was no other alternative, really. I mean, I, that was the lesson I took from this. And, and I got, you know, I had to think very carefully about process and technique in terms of reporting and how to keep people who I'm talking to and expose them to as, uh, the least amount of danger possible. And this involved all sorts of tactics, like buying throwaway SIM cards that you use, you know, temporarily and change. Uh, daily or every sometimes hourly um, and lots of other ruses to just to kind of protect the cover or you know, safety of, of of the kinds of Chinese people that I spoke about who are bravely telling you uh, about their circumstances and the details of their lives. Um, you know, you go back to, to the comfort of Shanghai and ultimately to live back in your country or in another assignment. But these are citizens of the country and and the consequences for them can be rather more serious and much more long-lasting. Um, so I guess just, just to wrap up, um, what would you say was, was your biggest story from that period in, in China? The biggest story? Yeah, like the, the biggest uh, story that you covered. Yeah, the, the sound from your end is acting, is, okay. is okay. suddenly, yeah. Well, I heard you, but there's something going on with the sound. It's become really scratchy. Do you Are you aware of that? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not aware of that, but uh, this uh, seems like a good, good time to begin with. Can you hear me, hear me okay, okay right, now? right now? Yeah, your voice is terribly garbled now. Uh, 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 if okay. you can hear me, if you can hear me fine, I can still answer your question. But there's something going on with your voice. I can um, hear you I fine, and mine include after that. Okay, so I'll, I'll answer the what was the what 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 was the most interesting story that I covered? You know, I because. We had a Beijing bureau, and the Beijing bureau's job, which they did well, was covering essentially policy and government and international politics and and all of that. Um, um, I, I saw my job as covering the society, and as I said earlier, social change. And so um, there were two things that I tried to do a lot of. One of them is to wander the periphery of China and to look at the life of uh, the minority groups, which are heavily represented all throughout the periphery, the peripheral provinces of China, because the politics of being a member of a minority group in a country that's 94% majority, Han, 
uh, are in, inevitably very interesting. Um, so that was one really interesting thing, and I, I just described that in broadly thematic ways. But the other thing that I did was a lot of, uh, and found equally fascinating, was covering um, uh, protest uh, in China via um, kind of burgeoning social media uh, and uh, a growing kind of civil society uh, tissue uh, via NGOs and, and other sorts of groups. Uh, which were really booming in the period when I was in China. Um, and so the best examples of this would be um, uh, things that were often environmentally related, where, let's say, a chemical uh, factory or a waste treatment plant or something uh, of uh, um, uh, sort of a, a polluting nature was going to be installed in some neighborhood of a big city or near a big city, and you would see the emergence of uh, social grassroots social opposition to this thing, and via social media, via short messaging on the cell phone, and via other social media things like uh, a Chinese messaging service called QQ, you began to see the emergence of very fast-evolving and very resourceful, clever social responses to these things, where Chinese people found, really for the first time, uh, uh, the ability to form ad hoc groupings of, to protest. Uh, uh, and to oppose uh, state policies, and very often effectively, surprisingly effectively. Um, you saw, I saw in Fujian province in the south um, uh, one of these movements where they actually were able to get um, uh, the cancel, win the cancellation of a big uh, PX chemical plant. Um, uh, and so this became a major focus of my coverage, covering this kind of social protest, and it was something that uh, because of the authoritarian nature of the society, by almost by definition, these movements arose really quickly. Uh, there was no advance warning. If you gave advance warning, you're warning the state, right? Um, so there's very little advance warning of when a protest is going to be or what to look for. And so you had to really be kind of have your finger on the pulse and have good networks of contacts and things like that. And I had a great staff who were terrific in helping us kind of be aware of things as they were unfolding, and we often had to had to run, you know, uh, on very short notice to 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 different parts of the country to be able to witness these things and to cover them more or less in real time. Uh, well, Howard, thank you so much for speaking with me. This is a super fascinating stories that you've told, and I'm sure the audience will love it. So, thank you. Great pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you all for listening. You should definitely follow Howard on Twitter if you don't already. He's an excellent critic of Western reporting on Africa, among other things. Uh, and while you're at it, follow me at Mark L. Goldberg and send me a note and let me know who you'd like me to interview. I do this for you, dear audience. So please let me know and I will fulfill your wishes. In the meantime, check out the archives on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I have over 40 of these long-form interviews by now, and uh, they're pretty timeless, so check them out. Uh, and if you like the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. That's super helpful, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.